0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorne, Who maintained law and order before the police? When did Britain outlaw capital punishment and why? And what are some of the weirdest punishments doled out through history? In our latest Everything You Wanted to Know episode... Historian Dr Nell Darby answers your top questions on crime and punishment throughout British history. Nell was joined in conversation by Rachel Dinning.
2: So before we get started on some questions submitted by our listeners, I was wondering if you could just briefly introduce yourself as
3: well as your areas of expertise um, I'm Nell Darby. I'm a crime historian and writer. My PhD looked at the role of the magistrate, um, at the lowest level of the court system. Um, so kind of petty sessions, um, between 1688 and 1837. So that's my, my particular area of interest. But since then, I've kind of written largely about more modern crimes, so the kind of, 19th early 20th century crime particularly murder Um, I'm very interested particularly in gender and crime and in newspaper representations of crime.
2: Great thanks Nell and we'll get on to some of that in a little bit but firstly I thought we could start with quite a broad question this was submitted by quite a few of our listeners Um, and that is how did the criminal justice system as we know it today develop in Britain And what perhaps were some early examples of justice systems in the past?
3: Yeah, I mean, this is really interesting because we have kind of the 12th, 13th century to thank for a lot of what we see as our kind of modern criminal justice system, actually we had the introduction of a kind of more modern trial by jury under Henry II, for example. So he kind of established that a jury of 12 free men should kind of adjudicate in land disputes. But he also set up a grander size or court where a jury had to report crimes in their local area to a judge. So although they weren't determining guilt or innocence, it kind of established that process whereby these 12 men would gather with the judge to kind of look at crime and criminals. So we'd had kind of similar Concepts before, you know, and even before the Norman conquest. But it's really in the 12th or 13th century that things kind of develop. We get rid of trial by ordeal, which is what happened before where people's guilt or innocence was established by kind of these very weird forms of torture, pretty much, you know, kind of walking on hot floors or carrying a hot iron in your hand. And if you weren't injured, you were innocent. So. It's kind of a modernising, getting away from that kind of system of, um, it's almost like witchcraft, isn't it? Punishments for witchcraft. Getting away from that to a more rational discussion, a more rational system.
2: That's really interesting that even as early on as the 12th and 13th centuries, we were having groups of people making decisions. It wasn't just down to one person. Um, So what kind of people were on these early juries? Did you have to be a certain demographic?
3: Yeah, the juries then weren't as they are now, where you can get people from all walks of life being asked to be um jurors. As with a lot of things in society, it was about status. So I think initially juries had to be kind of minor noblemen. Um, you know, it was kind of uh you had to be a respectable member of society of a certain status. And that meant that you were seen as a trusted member of um the community, somebody who was to be believed when they said somebody was a criminal or reported a crime. I was going to ask you about
2: crime more generally um, and how we might define crime, because I'm sure in the past, what was a crime then might not be a crime today and vice versa. A number of our listeners messaged us to ask um, what was the earliest crime that we might have evidence of, which might be a tough question to answer, but
3: over to you. In order for a crime to be broken... You need laws to be in place that make it a crime. And these change over time as societies change. You read in, even in the Bible, you know, accounts of crimes, you know, I mean, Cain and Abel, um, depending on your religious views, you know, you, you may believe it as a fact. You may think it's more, um, a literary murder, but still you have, you have this account of it. So you know that th- these crimes occurred in the past, you know, at the time that the Bible was written by its various writers. You know, and then just because something isn't recorded, it, it you know we can't see it now it doesn't mean it, it it didn't exist. You know, in pre-literate societies, they might have had a system of rules or what we would call laws, but they might have been passed down orally through generations rather than recorded in writing. So the the kind of remnants of these things that we have of crimes of punishments throughout history aren't necessarily the earliest examples or the only examples. They're what have survived. I mean, you could say an early example of a crime, you know, that there was a death penalty where in 16th century BC, Egypt, you have a nobleman who was um, executed for performing magic. So that's kind of seen as the earliest recorded example of the death penalty being um, given out. You have kind of early written criminal laws from Mesopotamia, from modern day Iraq. You know, again, these are a couple of thousand years BC. So we know that crimes have been committed throughout history we know that various laws and rules have been implemented to to prevent these crimes and to recognize them as crimes in the first place but we don't know everything
2: yeah i guess as long as there have been humans i'm sure there's been crime or some sort of misdemeanor going on even if we didn't have the laws or
3: language at the time to describe it as such but that's, that's it. But also, you know, crimes do change over time. What might have been seen as a crime in the past might not be now and vice versa. You know, and if you look at things like, um, horse theft, which for a long time was a capital punishment, although it'd still be a crime now, you know, the, the thought of killing somebody for stealing a horse, we'd go, well, why? We wouldn't do that because times change in our kind of recognition of what is of high value, what is worth um, giving somebody the death penalty for, has changed over time. One of our
2: listeners on Facebook, Joe Dragovich, wants to know what's the earliest record we have of organised crime, and he's talking about in Britain specifically.
3: Yeah, th- this is an interesting one, and actually um, another crime historian I know, Heather Shaw, has done some absolutely brilliant work on kind of organised crime and kind of gang culture in the past um and she's recognized that in the 19th century even although there's this recognition of the existence of kind of like a professional criminal some of these gangs and associations are very loose you know and so what do you call organized crime you know if you steal something and pass it on to a receiver is that organized crime just because you know of contacts in the criminal world um I mean, you could certainly say that, say, 17th and 18th century, where you've got piracy, that could be seen as organised crime. Because you, again, you've got these groups of men who have to take over ships as a group to to gain financial benefit from it. So I, I guess that's one example of organised crime at that point. And then during the kind of 18th, 19th century, you do have these kind of associations, these gangs who operate together, you know, and then, sort of towards the end of the 19th century you've got recognisable criminal gangs in say Liverpool in other urban areas leading to the peaky blinders in the early part of the 19th um, 20th century kind of carrying out these acts together so although kind of you might not necessarily call it organised crime it is according to how how we think of it now you've still got these gangs um over centuries kind of working out that actually It's better to kind of commit these crimes together rather than alone um, and use each other's resources. That sort of brings me on to my
2: next area, which is how have we dealt with crime through history? Who has been the organisation to deal with this? Obviously, today we've got the police uh, or even sometimes the military, I guess. But yeah, which groups of people have been tasked
3: with keeping a lid on crime through history? The police themselves, they're a fairly recent development. You have, I suppose, in, in Glasgow, um, they were kind of trying to police the city more formally by kind of like the 1780s. You have the Glasgow Police Act in 1800, which is arguably the, the first time that you have this legal attempt to form a professional police force to actually combat crime in the city. Prior to that, across Britain, you've got this kind of a system of watchmen and parish constables. And they have kind of like a mixed result because they're not necessarily paid. Um, certainly the parish constable, they're, they're part time. They're unpaid. They don't really want the job. They're nominated to do it, but, you know, half the time they're trying to get their friends to take on the role for them. The, um, watchmen, they're paid, but that, you know, it's kind of like, how do they do the job? You know, their job is just to patrol towns. It's kind of very limited. The police themselves, in London, you've got the Bow Street Runners who kind of come in mid 18th century. But again, their role is kind of a lot more circumscribed than modern policing. Um, it's only in 1829 that you get the Metropolitan Police being formed. And then in the 1830s, you get the City of London Police. And then you get the County Police Act in 1839, which which heralds this this new era of kind of county um police constabularies. But again, that's not even made compulsory till the 1850s. So really, our history of formal professional policing isn't that long. That's so interesting. It was almost like more of a glorified neighbourhood watch before. That's it. And what you find is prior to this, kind of joining the parish constables and the watchmen is actually the ordinary individual. If you have a crime committed against you, it's up to you largely to go out and investigate it and to prosecute it. So the onus is very much on the individual and the state plays a far smaller role than it does today. So, there's quite a lot of pressure on the individual you know if if you say have your house burgled what do you do you've got to try and find the perpetrator so you can kind of raise a hue and cry and tell all your neighbours that you know this is who I think the offender is everyone try and get on board and try and find him and apprehend him but largely it's up to you to go to your magistrate to report this crime to say who you think might have done it and to try and get witnesses to provide support for you you know you haven't got the recourse of bringing the police and asking them to investigate it. So I guess, were there more
2: examples in the past of what we might call mob justice rather than an organised system to tackle crime? So maybe a town or group of people came together to maybe ostracise a criminal um, and they dealt with it in-house, you might say.
3: Yeah, it could be. If you had, I mean, getting on to persecution of particular groups, even kind of in the 18th century, I found examples of gypsy communities picked on, you know, if, if one of their members goes into town, they will be the first suspect if something happens, if something's stolen or um, somebody you've seen who you don't like, somebody you've been suspicious of for a while, just in a more general sense. If something happens to you, you will immediately accuse them, whether or not you've got any um anything to back that up and so you do you do find that happening or um a mob kind of beating someone up or running them out of town so yeah I mean that does happen you know and this it's kind of like trial and error sometimes in terms of trying to find out who committed the crime you're trying to to find who the most likely um offender might be Yeah, that makes a lot
2: of sense, especially if you think evidence in the past would be nowhere near like what we've got today. You know, we've got cameras and we've got DNA evidence in serious offences
3: i mean it it is all this guesswork, and sometimes when you're reading court reports and you see lack of evidence there, or you know someone was just in the locality at the time, and sometimes that can be enough to convict them and to modernize with you know all the techniques that we have to, to kind of prosecute somebody and to find the evidence that convicts them it's it's really quite startling so on to the topic of punishment now. Uh, so when I think of
2: punishment through history, I think of some really unusual things, you know, putting people into the stocks, throwing apples at them, stuff like that. What are some weird and wonderful punishments that we've had in place in the past that we might find
3: unexpected today? This I, I like because um, I wrote a book on local punishments in my own area in the Cotswolds where I came up with all these things that were done in the local area, like, really? Um but yeah, some of them were kind of surprisingly common. So, I mean, you've got things like, in my area, certainly, the ducking stool or cucking stool. You've got the skull's bridle, which was also known as the branks. There, there are certain, um, punishments that were targeted at gossip. So it was largely women who were, you know, on the, on the end of these punishments, but. It was men occasionally as well. You might get paraded around the streets in your, in your town in the form of kind of public shaming. Um, and there were several punishments like this where the main aim of them was to, to embarrass you or humiliate you in front of your peers, in front of your local community, because what mattered a lot in previous societies was your standing in the local community. You were, more likely to spend your entire life within that community so to humiliate you in it was absolutely awful it was it was a real punishment and in that sense the stocks and the pillory are similar in that they were often placed somewhere like a market square so right in the center of a local community um again to humiliate an individual like you say you know you might have veg or apples thrown at you to kind of further injure you and humiliate you you do get exceptions. Sort of, Daniel Defoe was um, put in the pillory for seditious libel, but he had people throwing flowers at him, allegedly, instead of fruit and veg to show their support for him. Luckily, those punishments only usually lasted a couple of hours, so you know you weren't standing there all night um, having it done to you. But you know, we, we've even had branding in this country. You know, so the, your criminality was kind of forever. Evident on your skin, it's kind of associated more with kind of like Tudor England. But even um, you know, it went up to the early nineteenth century, certainly in in theory. And for a short time, even those who were convicted of theft, petty theft, if they had been entitled to benefit of clergy, you know, if they'd been able to read that passage out of the Bible and in court, they might still be branded on their left cheek. So, you know, you hear about these punishments and think, well, that that can't have happened surely or if it did happen it could only have been for a short period, but actually it went on for quite a while. And there's some kind of to us quite creative punishments as well. And in terms of capital punishment, although hanging has been the usual form of capital punishment since Anglo-Saxon times, you know, we have had other methods of of killing people such as petty treason which was applicable if you were a ma- a servant who had killed your master. Or if you were a wife who killed your husband, and only in the latter case could you be burnt at the stake, certainly up until about 1790 in England, I think slightly later in Scotland. That was, again, it was kind of like only a female punishment. You know, it was seen as particularly abhorrent that you'd killed your husband, and therefore you should have a particularly severe punishment, you know, more severe than hanging.
2: That's so interesting, the gendered element. You mentioned it with even like the lower level punishments, like the humiliating punishments were more often
3: dished out to women. What do you think the reason for that was? I think women were expected to, to live their lives in a certain way and it was a very constrained way. You have this concept of gendered space certainly up up to the late 18th century, where a woman is expected to have um, a very circumscribed life, living in a very domestic arena. If she goes outside of that arena or if she behaves in a um, unfeminine way, she is seen to have transgressed. And this is particularly evident in terms of sexuality. If a woman gives birth to an illegitimate child, she can be punished for it, whereas the onus on the men who father these children is just to make them financially responsible. And I've seen numerous cases in magistrates notes where a woman who's given birth to more than one illegitimate child is sent to prison because, you know, to transgress once could be seen as a mistake that can be rectified. You know, she can improve her behaviour. But if she then gives birth to more illegitimate children, that makes her a miscreant. She has to be punished for it. So you have the the certain offences and certain punishments that are designed to kind of um, control women's behaviour. And obviously, in in terms of what's happening recently in America, in terms of Roe versus Wade, you can really see some parallels here to how men have always tried to control women's behaviour and punish it if it kind of transgresses what they see a woman's role and a woman's function as being.
2: That's so interesting. And even with some of the punishments you you touched on briefly earlier like the ducking stool that kind of thing like the humiliation aspect of it and it being a public performance to everyone else is I think quite interesting I guess like today we we don't have that sort of punishment at all but we do have like social media phenomenons where like you, you know like twitter pile pile on of someone that's maybe been done something that's perceived to be against the social norm and they'll get cancelled you know that sort of like um group like like people almost enjoy it don't they on social media like watching someone be sort of taken down and humiliated and I guess um
3: that's been a part of our <laughs> nature for a, a long time. That's it I mean I, I guess it is human nature and you know you would get cases where when women are subject to the ducking stall actually it's other women cheering the process on they're not standing by or protesting they're they're kind of participating in it if you like you know I I think it is something that that is carried through to this kind of twitter pile on type thing and in terms of kind of certain red top press coverage of cases the the fact that women who offend are treated in a completely different way to men who offend the way they are written about is is still quite gendered and just briefly on the sort of practicalities
2: of some of these punishments if you're going to be punished with a ducking stool for people who don't know what
3: what would that look like I mean, there there are still surviving examples. I think there's one um, at Lempster Cathedral or church. It's it's a long construct with a stool at the end that a woman is trapped into and is kind of wheeled along to a river. And then she is ceremoniously dipped into the water. I think there's been kind of various speculation about women who have drowned um, having it done. But actually, it's more likely that it was a dip you know it's, it was the humiliation that was the the important aspect of it the skull's bridle is it's more problematic in terms of looking at the actual construct it's designed to kind of really restrict a woman's movement I mean it's like I mean in the past certainly in the 1980s if you had braces you could get this big head brace that looked very ugly and kind of really you know, it's very noticeable and the skull's bridle is the same it restricts you it looks very visible it can cause pain because of how it's constructed So although that is embarrassing and humiliating, at the same time, that has a level of physical pain to it as well.
2: So we're going to move on now to the history of penal transportation. So this was the relocation of convicted criminals or perhaps people regarded as undesirable to a distant place. Australia was one place that people got sent. So when did this start as a concept? When did people start being punished in this way?
3: Transportation first started at the beginning of the 18th century. So 1718, convicts started to be transported to America, to the American colonies. It was a means of kind of getting rid of these criminals, but also of them being put to work in the colonies when they got there. So I mean, and then that carried on until the um, American War of Independence, at which point it's like, oh, what do we do now? And then you have this period of a decade where nobody's being transported anymore. And alternatives are kind of being thought up. So. During that period, you've got these, um, criminals who kind of now are piling up in prison, um, are filling the prisons up. So then an alternative is found, which is Australia. Let's transport the, um, convicts to Australia. And so up until the 1850s, convicts can be transported over to Australia away from their families and friends for, you know, seven years, or it could be for 14 years or life and what happened when these criminals served
2: their time were they even able to get back to britain or were they then just sort of stuck in australia
3: you did get the old person trying to come back but it was very difficult to half the time you didn't have the the money to the resources to get back so even if you were sentenced to seven years transportation the likelihood is that you would stay there for life we had
2: quite a few of our listeners sending questions about this area. So Brendan Mitchell on Facebook wanted to know, like, what crimes warranted being sent away to a colony,
3: and what type of person would be sent away as well. In terms of crime, it was an alternative to the to the death sentence. So you tend to find that a lot of people were were sent to Australia for committing thefts. They could be quite significant thefts, but in some cases, to us, they look quite trivial. And you'd also quite get quite young people being sent out as well, and men and women. They tended to be from the poorer ranks of life because they would tend to be the people who would commit theft, who would need to commit theft. But I mean, yeah, it's, it's all ages, both genders and largely thieves. Interesting. Um, and one of our listeners as well wanted to
2: know when, this is a bit of a more broad question, but when did the concept of rehabilitation instead of punishment come in? So now we might say, oh, we lock people up to rehabilitate them, but that wasn't necessarily the case here. We were sending them away to work or so that they simply weren't in the country anymore. Um, when was the sort of a shift in idea about punishment so that it became more about rehabilitating a prisoner who's committed a crime or
3: a person who's committed a crime? I mean, even back in the 18th century, in 1779, there was the Penitentiary Act, which kind of made rehabilitation a part of prisons. But it was seen as, you know, it was very basic. It was seen as reforming this criminal character. It was largely religious instruction and solitary confinement, which obviously didn't have much of an impact in rehabilitating prisoners and actually just broke down their mental health instead a bit, a bit later on, so for in, even late 19th century, early 20th century, that moves are still being made to kind of improve how prisoners are rehabilitated. You know, this differentiation between young offenders and older offenders. You know, previous to this time, young were put in prison with older, more experienced prisoners. And there became this recognition that actually this wasn't a good idea because... If you went in young, having committed you know, a petty theft out of um, economic need, you'd then go into prison and find yourself with these kind of old experienced lags who would then teach you about how to commit more serious crimes. You'd come out actually a more hardened criminal than you went in. So you get this re- growing recognition that actually there are fundamental things that need to be changed about the prison system, you know, including separating the young and keeping them in separate establishments where you might have more of a hope of rehabilitating them.
2: That's an interesting point, how we separate criminals. Was there any separation in prison systems in the past based on crime? So would you have everyone sort of lumped in together? Or would you perhaps put maybe the hardened criminals, the murderers, would they be in a separate area of of a prison
3: i'm I'm not entirely sure i've always thought that everyone was lumped in together the The main differentiation you get is between kind of people who've committed crimes and people who owe money who are still put in prison but they're in debtors' prison so that is differentiated between and you've got a whole wide variety of debtors kind of of all classes being kept in prison sometimes even with their families who can't afford to live outside of their their main breadwinner, even even if they're not (laughs) currently a breadwinner. So um, you do get families kind of um, all in the debtor's prison and they have to stay there until they they pay their creditors and get out. So there's differentiation like that, but not so much actually as in the workhouse where people were kept very separate.
2: Yeah, one of our listeners in particular wanted to know a bit more about debtors' prisons and poor houses and whether these two Areas were linked to stereotyping of the working classes as criminals, because it was usually working class people who ended up in these places. So the question that came in was, was there a tendency to criminalise poor people in the past rather than try and assist or rehabilitate them?
3: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And especially in the 19th century, you see this theory developing about the so-called criminal classes, which reflected the number of petty offences being um, committed by members of the poorer working class. And you see it not only in criminal records, but also in newspaper reports. You know, Victorian newspaper reports are fascinating in terms of how they depict the the poor who commit crimes, how they depict people from marginalised communities. And you do think, you know, if the newspapers are referring to these people, People this way? Are they reflecting the views of other people, you know, sort of jurors, um, other people involved in the criminal justice system, where there, there becomes this assumption that certain members of the working classes are inherently criminal? you know they're incorrigible rogues they need to be punished um if they haven't got money they need to go into the workhouse and have as uncomfortable a life as possible you don't want to give them too many material comforts because they don't deserve it you know it'll mean that they never work for a living honestly um if you give them too much so you do have this kind of debate going on in the 19th century and you can see that kind of as workhouses get stricter in terms of the life they offer the poor you know and sort of the restrictions on outdoor relief where people don't have to go into the workhouse they can get relief in their own home for things they need sort of you know clothing um bedding you know there's there's kind of a change over time of kind of getting harsher on these people and also then you see as i say this this kind of um victimization of certain communities of certain races or religions um they become more associated with crime these people are seen as born criminal and you get this development of a criminal um, identification system, which starts in France but then kind of goes in other places as well, where there are attempts to kind of determine who might be criminal according to their kind of their facial measurements, um, how they look, and you can see how this might impact on how members of particular communities or members of particular backgrounds might get seen in a more negative pejorative sense by the courts.
2: That's so fascinating. What kind of things are detailed? What makes a criminal
3: face in the eyes of these guidelines from France? The examples I've seen kind of focus, you know, on ear size, nose size, some really odd stuff. But it kind of follows because you also get this kind of interest in phrenology, uh, I think, around the same time. And so you can see this kind of um, pseudo-scientific interest where you're trying to look at... the basics of somebody's physiology and say, right, this might make you criminal or not. You know, and it it, it seems quite absurd now, but, you know, th- this was kind of very popular at the time.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: And it's just a shocking case because it starts off so glamorous. You know, it, it starts off actually in Canada where her husband is this um, very well-thought-of architect, but there's this darker side to him and to his life. And you can imagine her as this very unhappy woman married to a far older man who doesn't really want to do anything anymore.
4: We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings
2: And going back to a sort of basic question now, I don't think I've actually asked you this yet, but how were prisons first
3: established? When did we actually start locking people away for crimes? Prisons have always existed in some form or other since, you know, again, 12th century. So you you get castles being used to house prisoners initially so that they're taking on this kind of additional function rather than being purpose-built. But then you get the development of kind of the purpose built little prisons you get lockups in more rural communities but they're not designed for the long term housing of prisoners they're designed for short term use so sort of when somebody's waiting to to go to court when they've been convicted and they're waiting to get executed the the little local lockups there's a lot near me um they were So needed in rural societies for like the local watchman or parish constable to go and hold somebody overnight, such as, you know, if they'd been seen drunk in the street or something until they could be taken to the local magistrate the next morning so these were kind of initially very short-term solutions they weren't designed to hold people for months or years that happens over time and i i guess you could say it's a result of that break in transportation where you suddenly need an alternative to people being shipped overseas and you've got this um kind of increased rate in offenses in in what can be classed as serious offenses what do you do with people if they're not being executed but they're not being shipped abroad either? right, they need to be put in prison and held there. And so from that, then you get this growing need for a new type of prison. If you're holding prisoners for longer, the old prisons aren't necessarily going to be the best places for them. And I think um, Jeremy Bentham in kind of the end of the 18th century came up with this design for the panopticon, um, which I think a lot of people interested in criminal history will know about. So this, this new design where you have the prisoners housed in cells in a circle, kind of a rotunda, and then you have the prison staff based in the centre in a building where ostensibly they can see all prisoners all the time. I mean, in practicality, they can't, but the prisoners don't know that. So the belief is, oh, well, the prisoners will behave if they think that anybody could be looking at them at any time. And so you get then new prisons growing up that kind of take on these changes in design. So you've got Pentonville, um, which is... Early nineteenth century, a millbank prison as well, that take on these these new beliefs about how best to look after prisoners, how to be able to watch a growing number of prisoners so Although you have these these old prisons which continue being used, you then get this growth in the new style of prison to house more prisoners for longer.
2: And what do you think was the main reason for their shift towards mass incarceration on a sort of longer term scale? What were the reasons for that happening, do you think?
3: Well, you get a kind of a change in, in mood. You get this kind of um, thing of a civilising society, but you also get this concept that, as Jeremy Bentham said, if you give somebody the death sentence and they die, what are they learning from their crime? Because they're dead, they can't learn anything. If you put them in prison, say, for life, They've got that long period of time to actually think about what they've done and kind of learn from it and reform you or you want to punish them. And the best way of punishing them long term is to keep them in prison for a long term time. Um, So there's this recognition that actually executing people for crime might not have um, the best effect either in improving somebody's morals or in actually punishing them what what does it serve so you get this kind of growing debate about the the death penalty and what's better death penalty prison so on the subject
2: of the death penalty what do you think are some key moments in the history of capital punishment in britain so some of the pivotal moments where say society's view has
3: shifted significantly well, I think from the 1840s to 1860s you get the biggest shift in terms of kind of horror really at the spectacle that public executions have taken. Charles Dickens went to see the execution of Maria and Frederick Manning in 1849. They had been sentenced to death for the killing of Maria's lover in Bermondsey and they were hanged at horsemonger Lane Jail and it, of course 1849 it was public executions and these kind of formed a day out for a lot of the working classes you know they would go and be entertained there would be things to buy you get the broadsheets being um, sold there it was also the opportunity for a lot of people to commit petty offences. You know, they go out and pickpocket other spectators. It became a bit of a free-for-all. And Charles Dickens had gone to to this execution and been absolutely horrified by the fact that it seemed this form of entertainment and people seemed to have forget- forgotten that two people were actually dying that day. You know, they'd just gone to, be, um, to have a laugh. Um, and so he wrote about it and other people started to write about it and kind of say, hmm. This isn't really what the point of a hanging is. You know, it's for people to learn from, not to be entertained by. So from 1868, you get this big change where rather than somebody being executed in public, executions now take place behind prison walls. You know, they're they're in private. So that that's quite a, a big change, I think, kind of recognising that people aren't learning from the experience of watching a hanging. They, they are just going for a day out and that's not really what you want. Gosh, it's quite hard to imagine
2: the logic of committing another crime in a place where someone is being punished in such a severe way for committing a crime. And I suppose on that note, what when was capital punishment actually abolished in the UK? Um, and what was the ta- what was the run up to that happening?
3: Well, there'd been a kind of decrease over time in terms of the number of offences that were subject to capital punishment. There there was this feeling kind of over the 19th century and into the 20th that actually it wasn't the most appropriate punishment for for quite a few things. So you see fewer people being executed. You also see kind of more discretion in court, kind of judges not wanting to give the death penalty to people and maybe sentencing them to a lesser um, punishment or um, you even had cases of, thefts where somebody had committed grand larceny as it was and should have been subject to the death penalty and they only get convicted of petty larceny because the judge kind of ascribes some sort of random value to the goods they've stolen to make it a lesser offence and that kind of feeling grows over time this reluctance to to give people the death penalty But it's actually, I mean, only in the 1960s that it was abolished. And even then, in 1965, it was only kind of a temporary abolition, if you like, because there was kind of a sunset clause set into the Murder Act that year that said it would only last for five years. And after that time, something else had to be done to make it permanent. And so in 1969, um, in England and Wales, it was made permanent. It was only abolished in 1973 in Northern Ireland. But yeah, um, I mean hanging was still an offence for treason, um, even though the last hanging only took place in 1946. I mean, that, that wasn't abolished for decades after. I think it's 1998 it was finally abolished and now you can only be sentenced to life in prison for for treason. But, you know, the, the fact that it existed on the statute books until the 1990s is is quite horrifying, really. You mentioned Charles
2: Dickens being quite against capital punishment back in the Victorian period. And one of our listeners, Toby Will on Twitter, wants to know what have the views of the public on capital punishment been like throughout British history? Has there been, has there always been a sort of for and against through time,
3: or is this more of a recent thing, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always been some feeling against it, but the, the cases I've looked at, kind of um, up to the 18th century. They've been down to the individual who's being hanged, you know, and kind of distaste over certain people receiving the death penalty. You get certain people become almost like folk heroes. Um, and the public is sympathetic towards them. They don't want to see them die. So it, it's more based on the individual rather than being a concerted kind of, um, campaign or feeling of, um, let's get rid of the death penalty. And like I said, I think that there's a kind of concept of this civilizing society that every generation or every kind of century you see people developing their, their ideas. And so when you get into the Enlightenment, there's, there's kind of growing, um, feeling, growing debate amongst intellectuals and amongst others about whether this is the right thing to do, about whether a civilized society should be killing members of its own in, in such a horrific way. And the fact that certainly up until um the Victorian times, the method of being hanged could take quite some time. It could cause a lot of pain. It resulted in you being kind of strangled. And so then you see attempts that, okay, the death penalty continues, but it's improved. There's kind of improved drops to make sure that people die quicker, that their necks are broken rather than being strangled to death. And in that sense, that's kind of akin to kind of the end of the 18th century, where women are convicted of petty treason and sentenced to be burned to the stake. Sometimes people would go up and strangle them first so that they were already dead by or unconscious by the times the flames got to them. It's kind of that desire that even if you're going to kill somebody for committing a crime, even if you think that might be the right thing to do, let's not inflict, you know, let's try and avoid that pain as much as possible. Mm, That's really
2: interesting, because I think it's quite hard... Today to sit here and hear that in the past these there were public executions and people would go along as almost a strange form of entertainment. And it's really hard to imagine people not sitting there thinking actually this is
3: a horrific thing that's happening. The past is a different country though, and you have to remember that even the, the threat of hanging didn't put people off committing crime. It didn't act as a deterrent. You know, and you you get people taking risks and not really understanding or not really getting the concept of of being hanged. And I don't know whether that's a result of the importance of religion in people's lives that they think there is going to be something beyond and they are, you know, that they're, they're going to be guaranteed this eternal life or, um, rising to heaven or whether there just isn't, is an inability to cope with the, the, even the concept of being hanged and being dead at the end of it. You know, and that's aside from people who commit crime because they genuinely have to, because it's an economic crime, because it's their only way of survival and they don't see any alternative. Um so I think it it's a bit dangerous to kind of ascribe our feelings today on people in the past because there's not necessarily that that correlation there that's true. Um are there any cases when it comes to capital punishment that
2: have been kind of pivotal to overturning it um that spring to mind for you or any cases that you found have found particularly interesting to learn
3: about in terms of the whether there's any case that's kind of got particular resonance for me, i I've researched previously the case of Charlotte Bryant, who was a poor woman, possibly from a gypsy background who was hanged in the 1930s for killing her husband. Um, and that kind of strikes me because she was illiterate. She had very little understanding of the criminal justice system. She had to ask prison matrons um, to explain the process for her, to explain documents to her, because she had no idea really what was going on or what she was supposed to say. Um, and again, you you find that the coverage of her case and how she was described in in certain ways, even today, um, people writing about her case kind of make assumptions about her. They have to see her in light of the fact that she was having an affair with another man. Therefore she must've been a bit of a a shameless slut. There were rumours that she had committed prostitution, whereas actually I can't find any evidence of that. She was very, very poor. She had to take in lodgers. She might possibly have had to kind of um, take paid customers very occasionally, but she was not, um, you know, a professional prostitute or anything like that. But the way her case has been covered and the way she's been described I think show this tendency to simplify people's lives and to assume they are a certain type of character and not look into the background of their case. You know, the fact was that this was a very uneducated woman who couldn't see an end to her marriage. She didn't know what to do. She didn't have the education to know maybe about divorce or um, knew how to go about that. So she'd committed a murder that she could be found out about very quickly. But then, she was not given advice or um, her lack of education wasn't taken into account when she went to trial and she ended up being hanged. Um, And I think that's one of the cases you look at and think, actually, the death penalty was not appropriate. I think at least she should have had help guiding her through the whole process of trial.
2: That's really interesting and sad. Um, One of our listeners actually wrote in to ask just Jessica Roberts on Facebook. Um, she was asking, was there any advocacy for prisoners who didn't
3: understand the law, perhaps those with learning difficulties? Yeah, this is interesting because, I mean, anyone who looks at census records um, will know that th- the way that people with learning difficulties was described left something to be desired. You tend to be put in a box of being an idiot, being an imbecile. And so there wasn't kind of recognition or advocacy per se in court however there were ways in which you could benefit from the court system was that you could stand mute So if you were asked whether you were guilty or innocent and you didn't say anything, you were deemed to be standing mute. And there were two types of this. There was being mute by malice, where it was decided that you were doing this on purpose, that you were um, trying to play the system. But there was also those people who were kind of mute by visitation, in which case it was determined usually that they weren't answering because they didn't understand, they hadn't got that mental capacity to understand. Um, And so although that wasn't always a bar to being tried... If it was determined that you were mute by visitation, the likelihood is that you would not be tried because it was deemed that you hadn't got the capacity for it. You, you get problems in court cases where somebody is described as being insane and sometimes it's not quite clear whether someone is insane or whether they actually have learning difficulties. So, the, so that can be a bit problematic. But have, having said that, I've looked through Old Bailey records. Um, if you look at the Old Bailey online website, which is a fantastic resource, and you do see cases of people who are being accused of crimes and witnesses come forward and say, but he's an idiot. He doesn't understand what he's done. He doesn't understand being in this court now. Um, and there's several cases I found from the 18th century where that individual is then acquitted. Because even though they say, yeah, we think they did this crime, we don't think they understood either why they did it, that it was a crime, and they don't understand why they're in court now. That's interesting. So a recognition of intent when you know
2: a person's intent when it comes to being punished and what they did um we've, we've touched on it a bit already but I wanted to ask you about gender differences so historically what kind of differences have there been in how men and women have been tra-
3: treated in the criminal justice system I mean, part of it comes down to what crimes men commit compared to women. And you do find quite a gendered difference. Certainly when I was doing my PhD and looking at these records from late 17th century into the early 19th, you find that men are more likely to murder. And I think that's still the case, you know, it has been the case throughout time. When they do commit a murder, women tend to do it using different methods. They're, they're less violent, they might use poison, which particularly popular in the 19th century so they, they have different methods of killing where they commit crime women tend to commit different types of crime and again this this kind of goes back to this concept of gendered space that women have a more or had in the history sorry a more prescribed arena in which they were expected to live and work so they could get away with certain crimes sort of the theft of washing from washing lines um stealing from neighbours Whereas men could get away with a larger geographic area, a larger area in which to kind of steal items. They might steal more valuable items because they could steal them from work. They could steal, um, you know, game from uh, local landowners' estates and they would cause less suspicion being seen in the area than a woman would. You find that men tend to be charged with these more serious thefts, you know, the thefts that give you the death penalty. So this could result in more men being punished that way. Women, though, can get punished separately, as I say, for for kind of sexual offences in a way that men don't. A lot of women would get charged with infanticide. You get some men being charged alongside them, but, you know, it's a small number compared to the women. You know, that, again, was a capital offence. So they could be sentenced to death for that. What you find over time is that there's a growing reluctance to sentence these women to death and to send them to the scaffold. And so you get a growing tendency then for judges to convict them for the lesser crime of concealing the birth of a child, which isn't a capital offence. So, yeah, so you you get these kind of clear gender differences, which can work in in two ways, you know. So you do find this kind of reluctance to to sentence women to death. You do find that they're less likely to commit the serious offences in the first place.
2: And is there any evidence... For people of different races being treated differently in the criminal justice system
3: through history, um, it's a bit mixed actually, and it's not just race. It's kind of um, your ethnicity, it's whether you're an immigrant or not. You know, I found cases that refer to to um, black members of the community, and it's not that they're described derogatorily. It's kind of you know they are described as the black boy, the black man, whereas a white man might be described by his job. So it's kind of the emphasis is put on the fact that they are black. I haven't done any res- research into kind of like how often they are acquitted of, of crimes compared to, to white people, but certainly attention is drawn to their, their race in terms of other groups of people you do get substantial feeling against irish immigrants certainly in the 19th century irish men are tended to be seen as you know this criminal type again they are wife beaters they are big drinkers they're treated quite unfairly in court evidence is treated in a slightly different way they're more likely to be convicted of these violent offenses and peter king a really good crime historian he's Actually done a whole study on how Irish, the Irish accused are treated at the Old Bailey from in the 17th to 19th centuries, you know, and found this, this clearly that there is this kind of bias against them and as an assumption that they are naturally more violent than the English, which is is quite appalling, you know, and it shows this kind of anti-immigrant feeling. And, you know, it's kind of along with this anti-Jewish sentiment that you also get in places as well, that anyone seen as the other, is viewed with a bit, bit of suspicion you know that they're, they're not natural born Englishmen you know therefore they must be suspicious so you get this coming through quite a lot in um, court records
2: Was there a flip side to that as well where certain people of certain class and status were profiled to be trustworthy purely because of who they were or who they were born so you know he wouldn't have committed a crime because he's the landowner of such and such place
3: I think that's true. And especially, say, if somebody from a slightly better position in society was accused of a crime by somebody further down, there would be this suspicion that, you know, can we trust somebody accusing his better of a crime? You know, you get you do get cases of servants accusing their masters of violence and there isn't necessarily that same kind of bias there. But I think that's because there's this recognition that you know some masters could be less fair than others, and um some young boys who are apprenticed or servants could get treated badly by them. That's not to say they they got a severe punishment, but there's not necessarily that kind same kind of bias there. It's a very class based society you know so somebody who is better off has more resources, better education, they're either believed more or they can put their argument forward better. Than somebody who's less educated.
2: So one of our followers on Facebook, Terence Anthony, wanted to know whether we borrowed punishments from other places in the world. So specifically, he asked how much was the empire, a place where policing methods were used that would then be brought to Britain? So did we borrow laws or methods of dealing
3: with crimes from other places? I think it's, it's a two-way system. I think we've taken stuff abroad and we've also got stuff from abroad and brought it back. And I think it's, it's partly to do with our, our colonizing tendencies. So when we went to America, we took with us, um, our laws, you know, sort of certain, our concept of common law. And so some American law de- derives from the British law. You know, it, it's kind of been passed down, changed, altered over time. You know, and I, I'm sure that, you know, when we went to Australia, again, we 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 take everything with us that we use at home and introduce it there. And then it gets kind of developed and changed. In terms of the opposite way round, I, I know certainly about more more recent times that you've got this theory that um, kind of the, the Irish influence in the Metropolitan Police actually led to kind of irish methods being being brought into britain a, a concentration on surveillance which we didn't really use before that um, and likewise um in india they had kind of a, a more focus on surveillance that again was brought back to britain so i think we as part of the british empire we we've gone to other places then and more recent times and kind of learned from what other countries are doing and brought certain aspects back to us, but we've also taken parts of our laws, part of our policing methods overseas in the first place.
2: So we're nearing the end of the podcast now, but before we finish up, I wanted to ask you about a true crime TV series that you are involved with. So firstly, perhaps you could tell us a bit about your role and then secondly, perhaps you could tell us about a historical case study that you came across during filming that particularly fascinated you.
3: For the past couple of years, I've been the presenter of Murder by the Sea, which is um, a CBS reality kind of true crime TV series. I'm actually just off next week to go and film the the next series. And that looks at kind of different historical murders each episode. And these can vary. You know, most of them are kind of fairly modern, but I, I'm particularly enjoying the fact that we're introducing kind of older cases. And it, it's fascinating looking at kind of people's motivations to commit crime um and what happens to them. One of my favourite cases that I've looked at, both as part of that series and that I've written about before, is the the Rattenbury murder in 1935, where... um a young handyman who was also having an affair with the wife, Alma Ruttenbury, went and killed, um, the husband, um, in their Bournemouth home. And it, it's really interesting again because you get these kind of very sexualized descriptions of Alma Ruttenbury who was acquitted of any offense, but in the public's mind, she was seen as being either as guilty as um, George Stoner, the murderer, or even more so, you know, it was believed that she must have persuaded him to kill her husband. Um, and the fact that she was young, she was glamorous. She'd been married three times, had two affairs that resulted in the, the second two marriages. She was depicted in very negative terms. She was seen as a bit of, you know, a scarlet woman. And this is, you know, even in the 1930s that she's being portrayed in a really poor way. And so if you'd heard of her story, you would assume that she was the one who was convicted because that's how she comes across and all the the coverage and all the um, subsequent books about it. And actually, she wasn't. And she ended up killing herself um, a couple of days after the the trial ended in an absolutely horrific way and a way that's quite unusual for a woman. And it's just a shocking case because it starts off so glamorous. You know, it's, it starts off actually in Canada where her husband is this um very well thought of architect. But there's this darker side to him and to his life. And you can imagine her as this very unhappy woman married to a far older man who doesn't really want to do anything anymore, getting very frustrated with that. And then she's put in this awful situation and finds herself on trial, not only for what she's accused of, but also for her whole lifestyle and her personality. Mm. And then
2: just a character assassination, basically, it sounds like. Um, Why do you think we as a culture, uh, maybe it's a recent phenomenon, but we seem to be really fascinated with true crime, like Netflix documentaries, podcasts, all that kind of thing.
3: Um, Do you think that's a modern thing that we're really fascinated by this area? I don't at all, actually. No, I know there's been so many column inches about why are we fascinated as though it's a modern thing. And it's not at all. If you look at kind of historical newspapers, the crime coverage increases steadily um, over the 18th and early 19th centuries. You know, it's it's clear that it's an obsession for a lot of people then as it is now. You know, these broadsides being sold at um, executions were hugely popular you know, and then in, in the 19th century, you've got the Illustrated Police News, for example, where it's got these illustrated stories of dastardly crimes and lots of murders. And it's hugely popular. Again, people want to read these stories. They want to kind of scare themselves. They want to understand the motivations of these murderers. Um, and it, it's like reading um, crime novels. You know, they, it, there's little differentiation. They want to just scare themselves. Um, and the illustrations are a vital part of that, you know, kind of. Um, displaying all this blood and gore. So I think we've always had this kind of um, interest in true crime, this, this desire to scare ourselves. You know, it, it's not a new thing. It, again, it's, it's human nature. This is something in our psyche that that we want to know more about, that we we like. It's just that the format of it has changed.
2: One of the big questions that keeps getting asked, and this is something that I found when I was looking for questions for this podcast, Um, one of the most Googled questions is, who is the worst serial killer in history? And I was wondering if you had a take on that. I find that
3: that difficult to answer because I think I'm always trying to understand murderers and their kind of motivations, their backgrounds, what might have caused them to to kill. I think one of the ones that sticks in my head, which again is um, kind of uh, a woman accused of murder, is um, Mary Piercy, who at the end of the Victorian era was charged and convicted with murdering her husband's wife, her, sorry, her lover's wife. And that was quite shocking because it's, it's fairly unusual that a woman, A, kills the wife, but also killed her lover and wife's young child as well. And she committed the murder in a, a kind of, not very feminine way you know I've, I've kind of said that um women tend to commit murders in a less violent way than men but mary piercey committed it in a very very um male way in fact that you know she killed the wife in her kitchen um and there was blood up the walls you know it was very very violent very aggressive and so i think that stands out in my mind that although we tend to say oh you know women are gentler creatures, they are less likely to commit murder. When they commit murder, they do it in a very kind of feminine way almost. That's not a straight cut way. You know, it, there are always going to be women who who break the gender rules, really. Um, and it just shows that you can't make too many assumptions because there is always a case that is different.
2: And finally, you wrote a book called Sister Sleuths, Female Detectives in Britain, which was published last year. And we actually had a great feature from you at the time in BBC History magazine, which you can find on our website, historyextra.com forward slash sister hyphen sleuths, if people want to check that out. So could you tell us a bit about the book and what
3: stories you uncovered? Yeah, I'd started researching, um, private detectives generally just because I was fascinated by the image of the private eye sleuthing around. And then I realized that you get this small group of women in the 19th century and they, they kind of come out of the 1857 Matrimonial Causes Act, which made divorce easier, but you had to prove adultery. And so out of this grew this kind of band of female detectives who were employed to kind of spy on usually a wife to see if they could get her um, to admit adultery or find any evidence of adultery. So they would do so by these kind of feminine wiles, you know, kind of making conversation with the woman, befriending her, even in some cases going to work in her house as um, a household servant. So you get the... These kind of, you know, you associate Victorian England with these very demure women, you know, kind of living this very domestic life. But then you've got these kind of um, surreptitious um, women using subterfuge and disguise, taking on these different identities, being quite brave, really, uh, and going finding out all this information about people and about their sex lives. And I just found it absolutely fascinating that, you know, women seem to have formed the minority of um, private detectives over time, but there's still this kind of core band throughout the second half of the 19th century and first half of the 20th century, kind of living these these lives of disguise. And actually in real life, they're, they're kind of wives, they're mothers. Some of them are, are kind of taking on the private detective task on the side, you know, working from their living room. Um, some of them have got Husbands who are retired police officers, when the husbands retire, the husbands tell them how to go about shadowing people and then they take on that role with alacrity. You know, you can see this kind of great enjoyment on the part of these women kind of going and finding out things and taking on these different identities. And I was just particularly interested in it because of several of these um, private detectives were former actresses and my ancestors were actresses in London at the same time and so I kind of had this this picture of you know I wonder if my ancestors took on a bit of private detective work on the side you know and or did they work with these women <clears throat> so it gave me this kind of personal link to them as well and I was just fascinated by the idea of these Victorian women just transgressing kind of ex- societal expectations of them doing something different and finding a way to become kind of independent career women um through shadowing these other people and did you find out if your relatives were linked to them at all i haven't yet but i'm still looking <laughs>
2: I guess that was like early female law enforcement like an early example of it even if it was an
3: unofficial capacity. Yeah, absolutely. And um you do find actually at the time of the Jack the Ripper murders that some people are calling for the female private detectives to to take on a role trying to track down the murderer because they said, well, the met police can't do it. Um you know, the male detectives aren't doing it. I think we ought to let the female detectives have a go because they'd probably do a better job. Um, and you also get, you know, some of these female private detectives do go on to become police women when they're allowed to.
2: Amazing. So this is probably all we've got time for today. So I just wanted to say thank you for coming on the podcast now. Uh, Before you go, is there anything you would like to give a bit of a shout out to? Are you working on anything
3: in the next year that warrants a mention? Yeah, look look out for the the next series of Murder by the Sea, where we'll have more kind of interesting cases from history and from more modern times. I'm currently researching my next book so that might take a while to to come out Um, but yeah that that kind of follows up on my Sister Sleuths one and looks at kind of Victorian and Edwardian um, private detectives and the lengths they went to to uh, solve
0: a case That was Dr Nell Darby Her book, Sister Sleuths Female Detectives in Britain is out now Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.